0: Well, let's pray, ask God to make this time in his word fruitful, and then we'll get into this passage. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray now as we look to your word that you would show yourself good and faithful once again as you use it. To hold us fast as we've sung, to convict us of sin as we need, to sanctify us, to point us to Christ, and to unite us as a church around what you've called us to. Lord, use your word in ways that we can't expect, surprising ways that are better than what we can ask even now. Use it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are, uh, we're getting very close here to the end of our journey through the important letter of 1 Timothy next week. Um, actually, not next week. Well, forget it. Three Sundays from now, believe it or not, will be our last exposition in the book, at least for now. Um, and this week we're going to focus in on verses 11 through 16 here of 1 Timothy chapter 6. So if you got a Bible, go ahead and get there. This passage is really about the right way to bring reformation to the church. The kind of reformation whereby a church becomes a more faithful church as is the subject of this letter one that's increasingly faithful to God one that is increasingly faithful with the gospel and increasingly faithful to God's written word the Bible Timothy has been stationed here in the Ephesian church to help bring needed reformation to the church both reform in their teaching and their doctrine and namely in helping the church avoid and confront and, and oppose false teaching and false teachers who are seeking to make something other than the gospel of Christ central in the church and in making sure sound, healthy biblical doctrine is being passed down and proclaimed and taught in the church. That was part of the reason why Timothy was stationed here in the church. He was also s- stationed here to bring reform to the church as it relates to their manner of life as a church. From the ways they treat one another, to the ways that they pray for others, to the ways that they relate to the world around them, to the to the leaders that they appoint and look to for instruction, to the way that they care for the needy and the marginalized, to the way that they treat their pastors, among other things. All these things are addressed here in 1 Timothy. And so Timothy had been stationed here at the church in Ephesus to take the lead in bringing some needed reform to the church there. And here in these verses, the passage that Denise just read for us, Paul sums up the way that Timothy's to go about doing his job. This is Paul's summary. But it's not just because the ancient first century Ephesian church was in need of spiritual, practical, and doctrinal reform. It's not just their church. It's not just this this particular church tucked away 2,000 years ago in the first century that needs reform. Every church in every age needs reform. We all need it just like they did. And that's because every true church, and by that I mean every church that believes and preaches the gospel of God's grace in Christ, and has, you know, biblically qualified leaders and is focused on making disciples of Jesus, every true church is in need of reform. Every church, even the best of churches, has its share of weaknesses. It has its own blind spots, it has its own flaws, it has its own uh, collective sins, its own characteristic failings. Every church, even the best of churches, do some things really well, and other things, important things even, not so well. Why is that? It's because every church is full of people who are still very much quite sinful in practice and who have not yet arrived to the end of the very long process of their own personal and individual sanctification there are no perfect churches there are no near perfect churches even the healthiest of churches stand in great need of continued spiritual growth and further sanctification as long as the members of the church, and that's including the leaders of the church, are in need of the Spirit's ongoing work of sanctification, so will churches be. There's always some problem, there's always some hole, some threat, some trajectory, some temptation, some conflict, some challenge that the church is facing that clearly needs to be addressed and oftentimes improved and corrected. And truth be told, it's never just one thing at a time, never just one thing. It's a bunch of things all balled up together all at once, all the time, which means that the church is always in need of great reform, great growth and change and transformation and sanctification. And everyone knows that who's been around the church for any length of time. Everyone sees ways the church can grow. You can walk into a church and spend a couple of weeks there and start to get a sense of the ways that that church is weak and the way that that church needs to change and grow. And the longer you spend in the church, the better, your, more clear your vision come, becomes. The question is, how can the members of the church, including the leaders of the church, go about pursuing and promoting and producing growth and reform in the church? How can they do it? Or better, how should they do it? And that's what this passage is ultimately about. Paul here shows Timothy the right ways the faithful ways to bring about needed reformation in the church. And what he says is as helpful for us as it was, I'm sure, for Timothy. So what we need to see here, what we're going to walk through as we uh, get into this passage are six ways, six ways that church leaders and church members can bring about or can pursue needed spiritual reform reform. In the local church, if you want to be an agent of positive change, which I hope that you do of of spiritual transformation in the church, these are the ways to go about it, to to see it happen. So way number one, way number one is urgently avoid all corrupting ministry practices, urgently avoid all corrupting ministry practices practices. Verse 11, if you look at verse 11, starts out simply, uh, Paul says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. The things that Paul's referring to here are the things of verses three through 10, the characteristics of those false and unfaithful teachers that he laid out in those verses that we looked at last week. Namely, we'll walk through them again just real quickly by way of review. We're talking about the characteristics of novelty first Teaching unique, original, new ideas that are not faithful to the old, ancient, written word of God and the good news of the gospel. We're talking about the, the characteristic of pride, which Paul points out of unfaithful teachers, people who think high thoughts about themselves, about their own religious ideas, their own opinions about God and their own personal standards of righteousness that they then impose on other people. We're talking about the, the characteristic of division. Division, bringing dissension into the church by way of just incessant, constant, needless debates and arguments over non-essential issues and other problematic issues. And then we're talking about the characteristic of greed, this motivation for personal profit in the church and personal glory like every false unfaithful teacher is guilty of seeking to center the church around themselves rather than Christ seeking to better their own lives rather than promote and point to Jesus. These are the things that Paul's calling Timothy here to avoid avoid these things. And truly to avoid them at all costs. I mean, he says, flee these things, like run from them, escape them, seek safety from them, get as far away from these things as possible. Why? Because they tear down churches. They devour God's people. They harm people. They lead people away from Christ. They dishonor God. So don't try to be new and original and find a niche for yourself in your church. Timothy, Paul says, preach the Bible, focus on Christ. Teach what the Old Testament prophets taught. Say what Jesus said. Pass on what the apostles passed on to you. And then don't think highly of yourself and your own personal opinions about our God. Timothy, Paul's saying, get over yourself. Humble yourself before God. Remember that he doesn't need you. Remember that, he, that you're dispensable. Remember that you're not the king of the church and that Jesus alone is. Don't be puffed up with conceit like these false teachers are. Take Christ seriously. Take the Bible seriously. Take your ministry seriously. And take yourself lightly. And then don't divide the church, Timothy, because it's not your church. It's Christ's church. Unify people as different as they are and as diverse of, as the group of them may be and, and unify them around Christ and his good news. Teach them how to love one another despite their differences, both theological and practical. Teach them to debate one another lovingly in the pursuit of peace and not to exalt their own opinions, their own personal opinions to the level of scripture. Unite them around the main things and teach them to be charitable in everything else. And then, Timothy, don't pursue personal profit and personal glory. Don't pursue money. Don't pursue the respect of others. Don't chase after the status of a teacher or a church leader, a place of authority over other people. Pursue Christ. Seek his glory. Promote his gospel. Deflect all glory and point to him in all things. Seek Christ, not money. Seek Christ, not material gain. Seek Christ above everything else in this life and let Him and the goal of being faithful to Him and the hope of being found faithful by Him drive you in everything you do as a leader in the church. What's Paul saying? Flee all corrupting ministry practices. Could be novelty, pride, division, greed. Could be pragmatism, just doing whatever it takes to get results could be legalism, you know imposing man made rituals and man made rules on people as if they're keeping or not keeping of those rules is the standard of whether they're really godly or not. Avoid ritualism, just making worship in the church and the gathering of the church about going certain through certain rituals and regarding those rituals as Possessing power in and of themselves to change people. Could be just man-centeredness. Avoid that. Flee from that. Self-centeredness. The idea that you and your ideas are the savior of the church. This isn't just for church leaders. This is for all of us. Avoid motivations. Repent of motivations that make you think the church is about you. It's about your desires, your aspirations, your goals, your needs, your opinions. Avoid all of that to keep things focused in the church upon Christ alone. Avoid all corrupting ministry practices and avoid them urgently. That's the first way to bring needed spiritual reform to the church. Avoid all practices that, that work against it, that, that oppose true reform. Okay, so that's first and then second, the second way is to zealously pursue the development of Christian virtues. Zealously pursue the development of Christian virtues. Look at what Paul says next in verse eleven, he says, flee these things, but then pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Pursue virtues, godliness, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Notice what Paul does here because it's really vital, it's really important. At the beginning of verse 11, he tells Timothy, and, and God is speaking here to us as well. He tells him to uh, both the, the kinds of ministry practices and ministry motivations to avoid, to run from. But then in the second half of verse 11 he tells Timothy and God tells us the kinds of things to pursue. So there's this run away from these things, run toward these things. Okay? That's verse 11. And do you notice the kinds of things he calls Timothy to pursue? What does he tell him to pursue as he's here to lead the church in needed reformation? What should he do? What should he pursue? It's not methods. He doesn't give him a method to follow. It's not programs. It's not strategies. It's virtues. Virtues, character qualities. Virtues like, let's walk through these. Righteousness. Righteousness, that's conduct. That's consistent with God's character and with God's will as revealed in Scripture. Pursue righteousness. And then pursue godliness. Godliness, we've talked about it many times because it's a word that shows up a lot in this letter. Godliness is a sincere devotion to God. A sincere, humble, worshipful relationship and fellowship with God. Pursue godliness, pursue devotion to God and then pursue faith, he says. Faith is a true dependence upon God, a trust in God, a trust in God, Christ the Lord a trust in Christ that looks to him as our only savior and our only king a trust that seeks him when life is hard and challenging he says pursue faith and then pursue love is the next one love is a selfless Christ shaped concern for the well-being of other people for those inside and outside the church, learn to love people, God says. Pursue love. And then he says, pursue steadfastness. Learn to keep going as a follower of Christ. Learn to stand up under the pressure of life. And by God's grace and with God's help, learn to endure through this life as a Christian for the long haul. Pursue steadfastness. And then he says, pursue gentleness. That is calm, humble, meek, careful dealings with people. Don't be harsh. Don't be explosive. Don't be reckless with others. Be gentle. Pursue gentleness. Now, what are all these things? What are these things? They're just qualities of Christian character. That's all they are. Fruits of the Holy Spirit, traits that Christ himself embodied, virtues that God commands his people to practice in his word. And I think this is something that would be really easy to overlook, but really must not be. At the heart of Paul's instruction to Timothy here, the heart of his summary of the right way to lead the church to needed reform is the need to pursue virtue what you call holiness of life, Christ-likeness. How do you bring reform to the church? Nothing else will matter unless people are pursuing growth in Christian character. Nothing else will matter unless people are pursuing holiness of life, unless they're pursuing behaviors and practices and patterns of life that look like Christ and are consistent with the commands of Scripture. Reform in the church is not first an issue of a church's methodology or the programs that they offer or the plans that they have in place or the goals that they've expressed or the mission statement that they've articulated or the websites they've designed and the technologies that they've employed and the classes and the groups that they offer, the music styles that they've adopted or the building that they own or it, any one of a hundred other things like these. Reform in the church is first an issue related to how people in the church live their lives. Whether they are living in sincere, sacrificial obedience to God or not, whether they're putting sin to death or not, whether they're walking with God or not, whether they're seeking to grow in holiness or not. That's where the power of a church's ministry comes from. That's where, it, where it originates from. That's how it's delivered to the church. It comes from Christ, delivered through the pipeline of a godly people. A renewed commitment to God-centered, obedient, reverent, holy living will change a church faster than almost anything else that church and its leaders might do. And there's a sermon there. But I want to keep moving. The second faithful way to bring needed reform to the church is to zealously pursue the development of Christian virtues. What is a church without a holy people? Then third, the third way to bring needed reform to the church is by fervently struggling against gospel opposing forces in the church. Fervently struggling against gospel opposing forces in the church. Another command comes in verse 12. These are just kind of rapid fire commands here in the text. Verse 12 says, Fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. I think by the faith here, um, fight the good fight of the faith, Paul's likely referring to the whole of the Christian life, the whole Christian life the beliefs of a Christian and the required practices of a Christian. And he may be thinking in particular of the faith as as all that it takes to live faithfully as God's household, the church of the living God, as he's called us back in chapter 3 and verse 15. But what he says here is that the Christian life and learning to be faithful to God in Christ as his church, as his own possession, is a fight. It's a fight. It's a struggle. It takes work. It's it, it's a battle. It's like a marathon. It's like a war. It's a fight because there are opposing forces standing in the way of true and simple faithfulness to God everywhere you turn. Everywhere you turn. There's philosophies of ministry that are geared to generate the external results. Churches and their leaders are Looking for. There's expectations on the part of church members and church attendees that the church specialize and focus heavily in areas that aren't directly related to the gospel. There's false teachers seeking to make people think that they've found something the church has been missing. There's sin on the part of church leaders that they refuse to deal with hidden sins, secret sins in the lives of pastors that they mask with administrative skill or communication skill there's conflict in the church that goes unresolved for long periods of time and is never addressed graciously or truthfully there's expectations of the wider <clears throat> wider culture that the church be this or that and not laser focused on the spread of the gospel and the mission of making disciples of Christ. There's philosophies and theories of men that people claim have the ability to solve all the world's problems if everyone would just buy into them wholesale. There's sin amongst the members of the church. There's a desire amongst the people to move on to bigger and better things than the message of Christ and his word, Christ and his gospel. I mean, the challenges that stand in the way of being a faithful church are endless. They're just endless. They come at the church. They come at church leaders at every single turn. There is no rest. There is no reprieve. There's no vacation from this. There's rarely a day when some opposing force or another doesn't try to get a foot in the door of the church and so continuing to be faithful to God and growing in faithfulness to Christ as a church requires vigilance there's no no time for sleeping here no time for kicking our feet up staying focused on the main things of scripture focused on the gospel centered around Christ devoted to the great commission all of that requires saying no to a thousand other things like a broken record and some of those things are even very good things if you want to help bring needed spiritual reform to the church you need to understand it's going to take a fight a fight against gospel opposing forces in the church that just never stop coming then there's a fourth way to bring needed reform to the church. And it's in the rest of verse 12. And it is. is my summary. To cling to Christ. As you serve him actively. Cling to Christ. As you serve him actively. Look at verse 12. Uh, the rest of verse 12 there. Take hold. Paul says. Of the eternal life. To which you were called. And about which you made the good confession. In the presence of many witnesses. Now the construction of this verse is is pretty interesting and it's a little uh, difficult and it is worth a little reflection. The command, the simple command is take hold of the eternal life, take hold of the eternal life. And the eternal life here is shorthand. I think for the, for all the, the life and the resources that Timothy has been given in Christ, that we all who are in Christ have been given. So then if we, spell it out here. The command is cling, hold on to the truth that you have been saved from the wrath of God through Christ. Cling to the reality that you've been forgiven of your sins because of Christ's blood. Hold on to the truth that you are God's son by way of adoption in Christ by the spirit of God. Hold tightly to the truth that you have access to God and that God is with you to help you in all that he calls you to do. Lay hold of God in prayer. Pursue Christ in his word. Know that he is with you. Enjoy the fact that he is for you. Remember that he will never leave you. Take hold. Take hold and hold on to the eternal life. That's essentially what we've done already this morning, right? In our, in our time together, in our singing in particular, we're taking hold of the eternal life. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine, alive in Him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ, my own amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, would die? For me. that's what we're doing taking hold of eternal life we're taking hold of the eternal life when we sing my when I fear my faith will fail Christ will hold me fast when the tempter would prevail he will hold me fast I could never keep my hold my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold he must hold me fast and then we say he will hold me fast he will hold me fast for my Savior loves me, so he will hold me fast. What are we doing there but taking hold of the eternal life? So Paul says, cling to these things, Timothy. Rejoice in these things. Enjoy these things. Rest in these things. Cling to them with all you have, sing and keep on singing, take hold of the eternal life. But then he adds these two reminders about this eternal life in order to spur Timothy on to cling to it as he seeks to bring reformation to the church. The first is that God has already given it to him. And the second is that Timothy has made a public commitment to it. So Paul says, you notice there, verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. This is referring, I think, to the moment of Timothy's conversion to Christ, the moment that he was saved by God. God has called you to this. He's summoned you to this. He's given this to you already. And then take hold of the eternal life about which, Paul says, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I think that's likely referring to Timothy's appointment to ministry, his ordination, so to speak, the day when he was set, a, uh, set apart as a minister of the gospel. So to paraphrase here, Paul's saying, cling to the life and the resources you have in Christ because God has saved you and because you have committed your life to serving him. Now, what's so significant, I think, about the way that verse is put together is that it directly connects Timothy's relationship to God and his service to God, his relationship to God and his service or his ministry for God. So there's no divorce here between Timothy's personal life and his ministry there's no division between his relationship with God and his ministry. His ministry is the outworking of his relationship to God. His relationship with God is expressed in a life of service to God and a life of service to his church, which is how it's meant to work. It's how it's meant to work in the life of every Christian, not in the not in the same way, of course. It doesn't mean all of us go into one particular ministry or another. All of us have to go into vocational ministry. doesn't mean that but it does mean that we will serve Christ and serve others and serve His church and seek the reform of His church in some way. And our ministry life is meant to be part of the overflow and the outworking of our relationship with God. And so the command here to Timothy and the command here to us is, in all your ministry work, in all your works of service and sacrifice, in all your efforts to bring needed reform to the church, when the work is a drag and the fruit is absent, and opposition abounds and change proves painfully slow and it feels like a marathon, like a war, like a fight. What are we to do? Cling to Christ. Rejoice in his salvation. Remember all the resources that God has given you in him. What resources are those? The resource of the Holy Spirit of God living within us. The resource of God's word given to us. The resource of prayer. The resource of Christ himself who's interceding for us before the Father. The resource of God's powerful preservation of his people. He will hold us fast. The resource of God's faithfulness to keep us and preserve us and save us to the end. We lack nothing for those times when the work is hard. And the opposition is heavy. We lack nothing. Take hold of it. Cling to it. As you're serving Christ, as you're serving your families, as you're serving your church, as you're pouring your life out in service to all kinds of other people, cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. So that's fourth and then the fifth way here to bring needed reform to the church is by doing all you can before God to avoid discrediting the gospel until Christ returns. Do all you can before God to avoid discrediting the gospel until Christ returns. Another way we could say it is keep the gospel central in the church until Christ returns. That's essentially what Paul says in verse 13 through the first part of verse 15. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Now we're going to come back to some of this next time, specifically the, the, the nature and the ground of this charge, the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah, even in the face of opposition and impending death. We're going to come back to some of those things. But for now, look at the charge. What is the charge? Paul says, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Now, a person's understanding or a person's interpretation of this charge is going to depend heavily upon what they understand the commandment of verse 14 to be. What is the commandment? And scholars have lots of opinions about this and they interpret it in various ways. But I tend to agree with those who see the commandment here as being somehow tied to what's been said in this letter. And to the job that Timothy was given to fulfill in the Ephesian church. What is that job? It's this commission or this mandate that was extended to Timothy as he was sent to the Ephesian church as a representative of the Apostle Paul. Commission and mandate are even good translations of this word, I think, in this context as well. So what is this commission? What is this mandate? It's the one we've been talking about through this whole series. The commission to keep the gospel clear and central in the life of the church. That's the commission, whether it means confronting teachers and people in the church that are, that are seeking to displace it from a place of centrality in the church through their emphasis upon you know irrelevant theological fine points or human traditions or outright false teaching. Or whether it means showing the church how we ought to relate to the world around us in light of the gospel as he deals with in chapter 2. Or if it means showing people how they ought to live in light of the gospel, specifically how they ought to treat other people, care for one another in the church as he deals with in chapters 5 and the early part of chapter 6. Or if it means appointing leaders in the church who won't discredit the gospel in the way that they're living as he deals with in, back in chapter 3. Whatever it takes, Timothy's been stationed here and commissioned here to help the church keep Christ and his word and his gospel central in it. Which should be the way it is in every church. This is how it should be. And here what Paul is saying is that Timothy needs to stay at it devotedly and single-mindedly until Christ returns. Until he appears, Paul says. Don't bring stain or reproach on this commission. Don't Mix in anything or put effort into anything that doesn't keep Christ central in this church. Stay at this thing until he appears, until he comes back for his bride, until he returns to the world to rule as king. Keep the gospel central until Christ returns. And I don't think this means that Paul thinks Timothy will actually see the return of Christ. I'm guessing that he probably hoped that he would or that Timothy would, as every generation of Christians rightly does and should. But ultimately, I think what he's calling Timothy to do is to work so that the church stays focused on Christ and stays focused on the gospel until Christ returns, period. Whether he returns in Timothy's lifetime or years down the road. I say that because it's the commandment. It's the charge to keep the church focused on Christ and the gospel that Timothy is to labor to keep unstained and free from reproach. Not Timothy himself, but this commission, this job, this mandate. A mandate that will live on long after Timothy passes on from this life to the next. A commission that Jesus says will be in effect until the very end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20 keep Christ central in the church until he returns for his church that's our job that's our job keeping Christ central is the command that's meant to be kept unstained and free from reproach it's the command that we're not to discredit or decentralize from the church it's it, and it's meant to be kept unstained and free from reproach until Jesus comes again and because of that the command of the commission is still in effect it's not just Timothy's. It's ours. It's our job. Keep Christ central in everything we do because this is his church, not ours. Because he's the king, not us. Because he's the head of the church, not us. He died for our sins. He raised from the dead. No one else did that. Timothy's job, our job is to keep the Lord Jesus Christ central in the life and the ministry of our church. That is how the church is reformed in its true spiritual needed sense. You don't manufacture this. You can't fake this. You can't muster this up. Only Christ can do it. And so if a church is going to be reformed as it ought to be reformed, it needs to be pointed again and again and again to Christ. Then, the sixth and final way in this text to bring needed reform to the church is by never forgetting who it is that we are serving. Notice in verse 11 how Paul addresses Timothy as a man of God. That's important. And then notice in verse 13 how he extends his charge to Timothy in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That's important. And then notice how he describes our God in uh, verses 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That is really important. And we'll come back to consider what it all means and why it all matters next time. Let's pray. Oh Father I pray that you would help us to see in light of this text that the process of your church's transformation the process of reform in your church is the process of individual Christians sanctification I pray that you'd help us to see that your church doesn't grow unless we, who are members of it, grow individually in our faith, in our walk with you. I pray that you'd help us to see that the way of true reform in the church is not that of administrative decisions and savvy leadership, but just one of godliness amongst the people. And so in light of that, I pray that you'd help us to see our role, each of us, each Christian, everyone who's a follower of Christ, help us to see our role in your church to bring reform. Help us to see that the way we live has direct bearing on the way our churches are. Help us to see that we can affect true reform by living lives that are being sanctified gradually progressively by your spirit day by day Lord I pray that you'd help us to see that the power in the power to bring transformation in the church is a power that only Christ possesses and I pray that you'd help us to look to him to see that power unleashed in our church and we do pray it in Christ's name amen